0: This episode of Post Reports is brought to you by AT&T Business. Get ready for the next leap in wireless technology with AT&T 5G. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post,
1: this is Colby. Yeah, yeah.
2: Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, March 5th. Today, the end of Warren's campaign and what it means for the Democrats. Plus, a controversy in the Supreme Court and a portrait of a portrait.
3: So I announced this morning uh, that I am suspending my campaign for president. Um, I say this with a deep sense of gratitude for every single person who got in this fight Every single person who tried on a new idea, every single person who just moved a little in their notion of what a president of the United States should look like. Um,
0: On Thursday, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts said that she's dropping out of the race for president. Now it's just Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders left as the serious contenders against President Trump.
2: I mean, I think one of the biggest pieces of this is gender.
0: Annie Linsky has been covering Warren's campaign for The Post.
2: I'm outside Senator Warren's house in Cambridge with um, probably about 150 journalists. There's like a helicopter over her house. Four years ago, Hillary Clinton, when she conceded to Donald Trump, she said, look, the hardest, highest glass ceiling has not been broken, but someday somebody will. And right now, you know, it looks like that somebody (laughs) and that someone is quite far away.
3: Gender in this race, you know, that is the trap question for every woman. Uh, If you say, yeah, there was sexism in this race, everyone says, whiner. And if you say, no, there was no sexism, about a bazillion women think, what planet do you live on? You saw
2: this field of candidates was the most diverse in in history, you know, multiple, very strong female candidates. And while Tulsi Gabbard is still in the race, she hasn't been on a debate stage for quite a while and has no real prospect of being on one. And Warren was really the strongest hope in the last few months of a female nominee. And this really closes the door and leaves the race in a position essentially between two white men who are in their, their 70s. You know, after the Super Tuesday results, when 14 states voted and she did quite badly, it did seem like her path was rather narrow. We've also been reporting that um, different liberal groups were beginning to jockey in position to try to get her, her endorsement. So it wasn't a complete surprise. But I think from a larger perspective, my real surprise was on Super Tuesday when she did so badly.
0: And what is your sense of what is going to happen to the people who were supporting her up until this point? Who are they going to go to?
2: That's a good question. And I think a lot of that is going to depend on what Senator Warren decides to do in terms of an endorsement. You know, we reported that people from Bernie Sanders' campaign have been reaching out to her surrogates. They're trying to create some sort of bridge between the two campaigns. Sanders himself has been quite solicitous to her really trying to tamp down any of the frustration and vitriol on the left that she hadn't gotten out sooner. But, you know, she also has ties to Biden and his campaign and his organization. And, I, I, you know, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion which way she she will go. Certainly her ideology, her agenda is much closer to Sanders's. but he also did quite badly on Super Tuesday, really underperforming expectations. And on his path, the nomination also became a lot more difficult to see on Super Tuesday.
0: And what do you think the calculus is for her in terms of whether she makes a decision on endorsing in the near-term future or if she does that later down the
2: line? Look, I mean, I think we can sort of look at her behavior in 2016, where she sat out in the headlines for almost the entire campaign. I don't think she's going to be rushed in this, but my sense is she's going to want to take a little time to decompress from the campaign that she's been working really hard on and think closely and carefully about whether she wants to sort of play the role of an outsider by getting closer to to Sanders' campaign or influence things from the inside by going with Biden. And she actually has the skills to do both. She has a history of doing both. That's going to be one of the pieces that she's going to have to decide. Will you be making an endorsement today? We know that you spoke with both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders Uh yesterday.
3: Uh, not today. Not today. Not today. Senator, I need Senator, some space around this, and I want to take a little time to think
2: a little more. I've covered Senator Warren in some capacity or another um, for seven years for three different news organizations. Editors at all three of these news organizations have always asked me, at, at some point, can you do a story and try to figure out what does Warren want? Like, what does she really want? And um, the answer has really been consistent. It's been she wants power to enact her agenda. You know what, and that's been whether she's wanted to be the head of the CFPB, uh, uh, an agency that she created, or whether it's been being a senator. And in this campaign, um, that's what she's wanted, and I think that you can use that calculation if you want to look at what she's going to do in terms of endorsement. Like where is she going to get the most power to enact that agenda that she's been so focused on for, you know, really her entire career.
3: I stood at that voting booth and I looked down and I saw my name on the ballot and I thought, wow, kiddo, you're not in Oklahoma anymore, (laughs) Uh, that it really was a moment of thinking about how my mother and dad, if they were still here, would feel about this. I will not be running for president in 2020, but I guarantee I will stay in the fight for the hardworking folks across this country who have gotten short end of the stick over and over. That's been the fight of my life, and it will continue
1: to be so.
0: So the fact that Elizabeth Warren has now dropped out of the race, how does that affect things?
1: Pretty similar to the way we saw Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg and Tom Steyer drop out right before South Carolina, in that the immediate effect is on Momentum. Does she endorse someone? Does that galvanize supporters to support that person? In terms of the delegates she's earned, those really wouldn't come into play in a way that could shape the race unless there was this contested convention and things were really tight. Because Elizabeth Warren could suspend her campaign and hold on to those delegates. Some of them will get reallocated, but hold on to the other ones. And then at the at the convention, if things are really tight, say, okay, I I release you to vote for Bernie Sanders or whoever. That being said, these delegates could vote that way anyway without her authority. The effect of having candidates drop out so early in the race is they have less delegates and less ability to influence what happens. What's really going to influence what happens in this nomination are the millions of people who haven't voted yet. I'm Amber Phillips. I analyze politics for the Fix Politics blog here at The Washington Post. So as
0: the Democratic presidential primary has been going on and more and more candidates have been dropping out, there's been this question that I've been hearing a lot, which is what exactly happens to the
1: delegates that have already been pledged for a particular candidate after they drop out? Two things happen to them. Some of the delegates get Divided proportionally among whoever else did well in those states. And by well, I mean this 15 percent threshold that the Democratic Party has put in place in all states. So you have to get that in order to get any delegates at all. So that, very broadly speaking, benefits Bernie Sanders in this Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders race because he did well in these early states to earn delegates. Joe Biden, you know, sometimes got 15 percent, but but he just wasn't performing very well, very consistently in these really early states. The second thing that happens to this other pool of delegates, these congressional allocated delegates, is they can vote for whomever they want at the convention is the short answer. If a candidate suspends his or her campaign, they're technically not ending it. And that's a way of like kind of hoarding their delegates and keeping them close to their chest. And then they get to the convention and and obviously they're not going to win the nomination. And someone like Pete Buttigieg says, OK, vote for... Biden. However, delegates aren't like robots (laughs) that vote based on what the candidate says. Delegates are more like members of the Electoral College. They're supposed to vote for whomever they were pledged to or whomever that person endorses, but they don't have to. They can go to the convention and vote for whoever they want.
0: So I think that as we're talking about how the delegate counts are going to play out, it's important to actually understand like what a delegate is, how it works, and why they're so important.
1: So basically, when you go to vote for a candidate, you're voting for delegates to represent them, not votes, because votes don't matter in terms of winning the nomination. Delegates do. And delegates are allocated two ways to candidates. One is in your congressional district, and one is the overall statewide vote. So the party... When it looks at how many votes these candidates got, they look at whether they got votes in a congressional district that's more Democratic, more liberal, and they have weighted that liberal district is more important to the Democratic Party. So they offer more delegates to whatever candidates got above this 15 percent threshold. You know, a more conservative district has less ability to weigh in on the party. So because
0: the idea is that in November this district probably isn't going to matter that much because it's going to go Republican anyways. So the people, even the Democrats in this community shouldn't have that much say in who the Democratic nominee will be.
1: Exactly. And then if you expand that outward to the second way candidate gets delegates, it's also by a statewide vote. States that are more democratic friendly have more delegates and then that's also weighted based on population. So California offers like 400 delegates. Massachusetts, another very liberal democratic state, offers a lot less. So, how many
0: delegates does it take to actually become the Democratic nominee?
1: This is the one simple
0: question, Martine. We can answer with a simple answer: 1,991. And how close are Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders to getting to that number?
1: They're like in the 40-50% range. We still have a long way to go. We're we're in March in their primaries all the way to June, with the conventions in July. This race is shaping up the way a lot of competitive primary races have in the past, but where you still get a nominee by the convention in July. And by that, I mean, a week ago, there were a number of candidates that threatened to take delegates away from the two main candidates in the race. Now there is likely going to be a race that's between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden going forward. And so there's a long way to go. But if somebody has like a really great night on a big night where there are a couple of states voting— It could seal the deal for them in a way that makes it very difficult for that second person to actually accrue enough delegates to stop them from getting to that number.
0: And does it make a difference whether there is a close margin between the leading candidate and the second place candidate or whether it's a total blowout and a pretty wide margin? It does not make
1: a difference. It doesn't matter how much the second place candidate got if the first place candidate gets 1,991 pledged delegates by the convention in July. However, what if they get to the convention and nobody has that number, but they're really close? Then everything's on the table at this point. We begin this thing called a contested convention. Now, it's really rare. Party officials stressed to me this hasn't happened in the past. But it's possible if you have nobody who gets that majority because they're so neck and neck on the delegate race throughout the spring and summer. Under a contested convention, you would have these delegates vote whom they were all pledged to, if they're following good practices, and then nobody gets a majority, you would have a second ballot. That's the part that hasn't happened in like 70 years, at which point it's a free-for-all in terms of lobbying, campaigning, negotiating, trying to cut deals to get delegates to move over to your side. That's where a person who maybe has the most delegates but not a majority would have a lot of leverage. To say, listen, I got a plurality here. I'm the one with the most delegates. Clearly, the Democratic Party supports me over this person who has less delegates. So in this scenario where you have
0: a contested convention, you have this second vote that's kind of a free-for-all, the delegates who are like the pledged delegates and supposed to be representing who regular people already voted for, are they allowed to change their mind and be like, well, this is actually really close. I need to switch, switch teams and go over to this person to get them over the top.
1: Absolutely. They could do on the first ballot, too. They just don't because it's not a good practice. There's another dynamic we need to weigh in the event of a second ballot, and it's people called superdelegates. They aren't pledged. They're members of Congress, Democratic Party officials, former governors, former presidents, former vice presidents, who just by like the stature of being in the Democratic Party as an elected official get to vote for whomever they want. Now, in 2016, they got to vote on that first ballot. Bernie Sanders criticized them for being like members of the establishment, waiting it for Hillary Clinton.
4: Last time around in 2016, you talked about 2016. You will remember that before the very first vote was cast in Iowa, Hillary Clinton had 500 superdelegates at her side. She walked in, campaign began, 500 superdelegates. I thought that that was totally outrageous and absurd and undemocratic. So I think it is should be the decision of the people, not Washington insiders.
1: He worked with the Democratic Party to change the rules for 2020 that pushed them to the second ballot. So let's say we get a first ballot. Nobody gets a majority. All of a sudden, you have about almost 800 party officials who get to vote. That could be the big difference there. for a more establishment candidate. The assumption there is that that would be pretty
0: bad for Bernie Sanders because you would have these Democratic governors and members of Congress and party officials who you would imagine, many of whom have relationships with Joe Biden through the Democratic Party and would probably vote for him.
1: Yes, that is a fair assumption. These tend to be people who more line up with Joe Biden in terms of the Democratic Party. So in theory,
0: Bernie Sanders... What he did after 2016 was trying to remove the superdelegates from the early stages of the process because he felt that they were having an undue influence. But how it looks like so far, there is a potential where that could still be really bad for him, even though he took these steps to try to avoid a scenario in which the kind of heart of the establishment of the party is getting to dictate whether or not he is the nominee.
1: Right. If they get to a contested convention and neither him nor Biden have a majority of votes, the new rules essentially push it back to where these superdelegates weigh in on the second ballot. And in the end, it's, you know, possibly cost Sanders the nomination.
0: So the fact that we are here a couple days after Super Tuesday and already it's essentially a two-person race, does that simplify a lot of parts of this process?
1: It does, because it means there aren't candidates in either lane, the progressive or the moderate one, taking away delegates and making it more and more likely we get to a contested convention. It just becomes a delegate per delegate per delegate race. And if another candidate has a really good night, like if Joe Biden has another Super Tuesday, it could make it so the math is very difficult for Bernie Sanders to catch up. Anything could happen in this race. A week ago, we didn't think Joe Biden would be in it, potentially, much less the front runner. So what if Bernie Sanders has a really good race and makes it difficult for Joe Biden to catch up? He could get a lot of delegates from California that are still outstanding from being counted and jump ahead of Biden in the delegate race right now. There are some Western states coming up on Tuesday, and Sanders has done well in Western states and among Latino voters. It's a delegate per delegate race among two men, but anything could happen.
0: Amber Phillips writes about politics for the fix. And Justice is came to the
4: bench. On Wednesday, Charles Schumer, the Senate minority leader, uh, appeared at a abortion rights rally in front of the Supreme Court as the court was taking up a key abortion case, the first one since the installation of President Trump's two Supreme Court justices, and had some very strong words for the new justices, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch.
3: I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price.
4: You will pay the price and quote,
3: You won't know what hit you. If you, you won't know what go hit you. With these awful decisions.
4: I'm Aaron Blake, senior political reporter for The Fix. There was immediately an uproar. Uh, some interpreted this as a threat, and it actually earned a, a significant and very unusual rebuke from Chief Justice John Roberts, who called the comments dangerous in a statement on Wednesday evening.
0: Because the sense was that this was both a disrespectful thing to say, but also an undermining of the separation of powers.
4: Yeah, so certain Republicans argued that this constituted perhaps some kind of a physical threat, uh, some kind of violence.
1: If any American had these words shouted at them from a sidewalk outside their office, they would hear those threats as personal. And most likely they would hear them as threatening.
4: I think if you read it even in a less nefarious light that he was just talking about some kind of uh, what his spokesman described as a grassroots movement rising up in reaction to one of these rulings, even that is a pretty remarkable statement from a US senator, essentially saying that political pressure will be brought to bear upon the court. If it rules in the wrong way, Chuck Schumer was essentially talking about these justices as if they were his defined political opponents and people who could be susceptible to political pressure rather than justices who are charged with just interpreting the law and abiding by the Constitution.
0: But then I think it's also worth pointing out that Chuck Schumer actually followed up this morning on the floor of the Senate.
4: Now, Madam President, I just listened to the Republican leader. So Schumer's office on Wednesday after the comments was basically doubling down on this, saying that the comments were being deliberately misinterpreted by Republicans. Schumer softened that on the Senate floor a little bit on Thursday morning, basically saying, Now, I should not have used the words I used yesterday. They didn't come out the way I intended to. Of course, I didn't intend to suggest anything other than political and public opinion consequences for the Supreme Court. And it is a gross distortion to imply otherwise. I'm from Brooklyn. He said, I'm from Brooklyn and we use tough language, but I shouldn't have used the words that I did. Also standing by the general sentiment, though, which was that this is a very important issue, women's reproductive rights, and that he doesn't make any apologies for being a a staunch advocate for, for that and that he really worried that the Supreme Court was going down this road.
0: Yeah, I think that's what's so interesting about this particular incident is that Democrats have really ceded the moral high ground in this scenario to Republicans. You have Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on the floor of the Senate today basically talking about the importance of, of having the judiciary be independent from political passions.
3: To
1: attack judicial independence, remind us that
4: independence is essential.
0: And then you have this tweet from the president making a really vociferous defense of of the importance of having an independent judiciary. He said, there can be few things worse in a civilized, law-abiding nation than a United States senator openly and for all to see and hear threatening the Supreme Court or its justices. Which felt a little bit ironic for some of the ways that President Trump has talked about justices in the past, but it seems like Republicans are really leaning into the sense of, well, Democrats in this situation are the ones who are doing wrong.
4: Obviously, anytime something like this happens, there is a healthy dose of whataboutism. There is comparisons between what the two sides have said, which is worse. The argument from Republicans is, yes, maybe the president has attacked judges in the past, but that he hasn't threatened them in the way that Chuck Schumer did. Whether that holds water, you know, that's for people to decide. And certainly the president has not been a a steward of uh, the independent judiciary throughout his tenure. And so when Republicans like Mitch McConnell go on the Senate floor and talk about the importance of that, it's really tough to, you know, take that without the context of what the president has done and what many Republicans have declined to speak up about uh, when the president has basically cast judges as being political actors.
0: But the fact that there seems to be this ramping up on both sides of a more politicized attitude toward the court's. What do you think that says about the potential future of the health of our democracy?
4: I think it's a reflection of uh, an acknowledgement that both parties have made and Democrats are increasingly coming around to that, that the judiciary is increasingly predictable, that the justices installed by President Trump are probably going to decide in ways that Republicans like. That hasn't always been the case in recent decades. We had appointees of Reagan and the first George Bush who wound up siding with the left side of the court in many cases. But when you start talking about judges and justices as if they're political actors, you know there is something lost there as far as the independence of the judiciary and the faith in the idea that judges are actually deciding things according to the constitution and interpreting the law versus doing things that the people who appointed them want them to.
0: Aaron Blake covers politics for The Fix. This episode of Post Reports is brought to you by AT&T Business. And now one more thing.
5: It hangs in the National Gallery in D.C. It's really simple. It's just a a picture of a girl arranging her hair. And it's called, believe it or not, Girl Arranging Her Hair.
0: (laughs) This is Sebastian Smee. He's an art critic for The Post. And this is part of a series that he's been working on about his favorite underappreciated works that are in permanent collections around the U.S.
5: She's sitting in front of a washing basin. She's wearing a white gown. One arm's raised, the shiny bony sort of part of her elbows exposed and uh, the other hand is kind of holding the end of her hair as she pulls it into a ponytail. As soon as you see this painting, which is by the great American Impressionist Mary Cassatt, you just know that it's special. The girl is looking slightly up and away. And although her face is almost sort of expressionless, she has this extraordinary presence. A kind of immediacy or fullness of being that's unmistakable, and I think incredibly rare in art. I don't know how to explain it. I, I, I guess I could focus on her, her, her blotchy red cheeks; they're kind of roughly the same color as the wallpaper behind her. I could mention her shiny chin or her squashed-looking lower lip and the little glimpse of teeth, but it's not really about those things—at least not separately. It's an overall, all-at-once effect. Some people like to talk about the timelessness of great art. But what's so wonderful about this painting for me is how Cassatt uses all her skill, all her feeling for composition and colour and texture, and her amazing draftsmanship, her, her understanding of anatomy and so on, to create an impression not so much of timelessness, but of something incredibly tied to the moment. This gorgeously specific human presence fully occupying a really brief window of time, a fleeting moment. Because we're sort of bombarded by the idea of beauty and, you know, glamour and all the stuff we see through advertising, sometimes when we're in public we look at people through that lens and we sort of try and pick out the most beautiful people and the people who've got the most style or look the most fashionable or whatever, But Sometimes you can switch that part of your brain off or change a channel in your head slightly and just look at it through another lens and just think, wow, look at that person, look really closely. You don't even have to sort of say what would it be like to be that person or what's going on inside their head. You can just look at their actual presence, their face, their physicality and see a different kind of beauty in that. Just just something about how incredible it is that each person is individual and, and different. In art, when you go to museums, often you see too much of that idealisation because that's what painters have been rewarded for doing. I love art. It says, no, no, let's show people in all of their aspects. Let's see what they're really like. Let's find ways of depicting them in different settings. So they're not sitting on some throne, but they're in their domestic interior. They're just attending to their own inner lives. They're paying attention to, to what's going on. They're unself-conscious. And I think Mary Cassatt did that beautifully. I really do. I think that was one of her great contributions.
0: Sebastian Smee is an art critic for The Post. Go to postreports.com for a link to an image of the portrait, Mary Cassatt's Girl Arranging Her Hair. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow on the show, do celebrity endorsements matter?
1: The short answer is no. Um, There has been one documented instance when it actually worked, which was Oprah for Obama in 2008.
0: I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This episode of Post Reports is brought to you by AT&T Business. Get ready for the next leap in wireless technology with AT&T 5G.